You you had 38 people praying, and I was wondering because you were at 37 people praying for so long. I was wondering if I was really going to answer the prayer, and that's when I immediately answered your request. God doesn't do that. Welcome to the dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to Dismantle Podcast, a show for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with that subject. Now, if you're new to the show, we're not always going to agree, and that's okay, but we're not going to argue because our goal is to gain understanding and perspective by sharing our views in a way that builds bridges but not barriers. Our guest today is Mark Karras. Mark is an ordained pastor, licensed marriage and family therapist, a speaker, musician, and adjunct professor. He is the author of Divine Echoes, Reconciling Prayer with the Uncontrolling Love of God. Mark, welcome to the show. Joey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited we got to connect and uh, we're having this conversation. I'm ready to go. Excited. So, Mark, as we ask every guest, how did you get introduced to church and faith? What's some of your background with spiritual stuff? Yeah, this probably could take a whole podcast, but I'll do a very, very condensed version. No spirituality or faith growing up. And so childhood experience was very interesting it was full of um, surrounded by drugs and violence and chaos and mayhem and uh, very depressed growing up cutter and suicidal and then uh, my twin brother I have a twin brother and I have a, a younger brother who's a year and two months younger my twin brother became a Christian and he got saved in a UPC, UPC Oneness Pentecostal church. And he would always tell me about Jesus and Jesus loves you. And at the time I was like, yeah, screw you. Well, it was, well, use more profanity than that. But I wanted nothing to do with this God, this Jesus. I was actually in a, in a progressive metal hardcore band at the time uh, doing some tri-state touring, doing very well. Didn't want to hear nothing about Jesus. Fast forward, uh, even though I, I, I played in front of large audiences and uh, at the time I had a porn star for a girlfriend, but I still felt very empty, felt very depressed, very lost, no sense of hope or future orientation whatsoever. And so I started thinking about what my brother was saying, um, and it wasn't, it wasn't even thinking, I was even in my dreams having sort of these faith-filled God sort of reaching out to me, calling me, me crying hysterical, running from God. I didn't know what the hell was going on. And a little bit, uh, fast-forwarding a little bit to the point of me finally being alone by myself in a field, and I remember the last words, it, it was sort of a very transformative experience. I raised my hands to the sky and I just said, I probably look pretty weird, but I said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. If you're real, then prove yourself to me. And at that moment, there was this sort of um, transformation. There was this revealing God, revealing God's self to me in such a profound way that I cried. Uh, and this wasn't out of fear. This was out of a, 
a very powerful sense of love really taking all overwhelming me and from that experience that uh, really sort of put a stake in the ground in, in the Christian faith uh, and that spiritual experience and subsequent spiritual experiences kept me grounded in the, in the Christian tradition, even though uh, a large part of me is like this Christian tradition is crazy uh, and toxic for many reasons that we might or might not get into. So that's a little bit of a dive into, then I got into that one is Pentecostal church and that was a cult and I couldn't cut my hair and it was a very cultural environment. I couldn't hang out with people who believe in the Trinity and it was just very crazy. And, uh, but I finally got out of that and it, the story goes on and on, but I met Jesus and here I am today, many years later after many shifts and paradigm shifts of who God looks like, what God looks like, uh, at least in, in my understanding of God. Um, so yeah, it's, crash course into my spiritual journey. That is awesome. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. So today on the show, we're diving into some of the themes of your new book, Divine Echoes. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what sparked the book? What was happening around you that kind of led to the writing of the book? Hmm. The, the failure of petitionary prayer, and that's, that's sort of the crux of the book. There's many different kinds of prayer, but what what I'm talking about in the thrust of the book is dealing with petitionary prayer, you know, sort of the being alone in your room and, Hey God, Aunt Mary's sick, please heal Aunt Mary or, you know, church prayer meeting, praying for that God would rid the nation of violence or oppression of certain people groups, that kind of that prayer. And so it was the failure of petitionary prayer and therefore a desire to deconstruct and reconstruct petitionary prayer that really was percolating in my spirit and was a splinter in my mind, if you will, for many years. And I think the main catalysts were what happened to my mother and brother. And I, I prayed and fasted for my mother for a very long time. She was a drug addict, uh, as long as I could remember. And not only did I petition God with groans and tears, but I had many Christians doing so as well. But after several years of begging God, my mother would eventually die from a drug overdose. Not only was I praying for my mom, but I was also praying for my brother. And this was over many years. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And once again, I prayed, I pleaded, I begged, fasted, groaned, wailed, screamed, whispered. I, I mean, I did everything I possibly could to motivate slash empower, slash encourage, whatever word you want to throw in there, for God to heal him. But eventually, after being off his meds, he did something stupid that landed him in prison. Then years later, off of his meds, he, he murdered an inmate, and now he'll spend the rest of his days in, well, what I would consider hell. So those were two very transformative experiences for me that sort of made me really question, what's up with prayer? What's up with praying for others? Man, I mean, I fasted. I, I prayed. Other people did too. But it was also I started observing how the prayers that we prayed actually portrayed God and mine as well. I, was, I wanted to really look at how I was praying, what I was praying. And honestly, they portrayed God like an unfair, arbitrary, stingy, narcissistic, autocratic, moral monster. And lastly, I started being very concerned that 
petitionary prayer could paradoxically be contributing to more suffering in the world. I mean, if people believe that praying to God in a certain manner, at a certain volume, and with certain words will convince God to single-handedly root out prejudice or reduce hate crimes or solve the problem of homelessness or heal drug addicts, stop rapes from occurring, and so on, I think they're engaging in magical thinking and superstition of the worst kind. And I'll, I'll get into more of that probably as we talk. But they were praying for things that were already a yes and amen to God. And so those were a few of the things that was like, something's not okay with the way that we pray and, and the God that's portrayed through them. I think we struggle with this idea of God answering prayer a lot. Uh, it's it's not a black and white thing, and some skeptics would even say it's highly circumstantial, meaning that if we see an answer to prayer and we just attribute it to God, those might just be coincidences. In your opinion, Mark, how do we know when an answered prayer is just that, answered because God decides to move on hmm. our behalf, responding to our request? Yeah, this is a this is a tough question. Uh, there, there's absolutely, in my opinion, there's no way to know if our petitionary prayers accomplish anything. God is not in the habit of saying things like, "Good job, you're talking to me," otherwise known as prayer, did the trick. When events turn out the way we prayed, uh, at least that's not my experience, for God to do such a thing. And related, we don't know if what we asked for in prayer would have come to pass if we didn't pray for it. Again, we just don't know. I, I recently heard a podcast where someone had an important prayer request, and they did an experiment. And instead of praying to God, they prayed to a milk jug. I know, sounds weird, sounds crazy. And what do you know? After a little bit of time, his prayer was answered. And thank you. Uh, holy milk drug. Um, so we, we just don't know if the things that we prayed for uh, would have come to pass. And then there's the problem of the logical fallacy, a post hoc ergo propter. I know it's a mouthful that basically says after this, therefore, because of this. So for example, let's say a friend of mine is a party outside and it starts raining and threatening to ruin his party, right? So my friend begins to pray, and five minutes later, the rain stops. He says, see, God answered my prayer. So his assumption that his prayers caused the rain to stop uh, may be an example of the post hoc ergo propter logical fallacy. And in my opinion, the reality is, is that atheists in predominantly atheistic countries, without Christians specifically praying for their specific needs, experience miracles that we would deem miracles without prayer. Their cancer instantly goes into remission. They remarkably recover from depression and addictions, just like Christians. They survive accidents and fires. They receive rent money at the last minute. They reconcile with estranged family members. They experience all the miracles, quote miracles, that Christians claim occurred through prayer, but without the prayer. Now, that doesn't mean I don't think God was not involved in all the blessings and miracles atheists experience. For me, God is a virtuoso of love, is always on the move. I'm just stating that I don't think they came about specifically because of petitionary prayer. 
So it's a very nuanced conversation, but those are some things that come to mind for me. Sure. Almost a, a chicken and the egg scenario. Right. I mean, it's, it's like I said, I don't know about for you, but is, is God in the habit of saying, thank you. You, you had 38 people praying and I was wondering because you were at 37 people praying for so long, I was wondering if I was really going to answer the prayer. But thankfully, just so you know, the 38th person prayed. Thank goodness for that prayer chain. And that's when I immediately answered your request. God doesn't do that, at least not to me and for the people that I know, which, you know, is a lot of people from different faith experiences. Now, Mark, is there a biblical precedent for God bending to his people's prayer? And I say that sort of tongue in cheek, sort of knowing a little bit of biblical stories and things like that. But, you know, in your opinion and knowing texts, being a pastor, what is the what is the theology that we're pulling from that God responds to people asking for things? This is tough because I spend a lot of time in my book. There's three sections, investigation, deconstruction, and reconstruction. And I spend a, a bit on some biblical passages. And I would be a fool to say that there are no biblical precedent for, uh, you know, God bending to his people's prayer. So there is. I mean, we, we know in, uh, let's see, uh, in First Samuel, Hannah who was childless and who wept bitterly for a child was given a child. As the text says, the Lord remembered her. And so God instantly, I guess, miraculously messed with some cells. And there you go. Uh, First King 18 talks about Elijah praying that God would send down fire and consume the altar of Baal. And God did so. In Exodus 32, uh, what's that? Uh, Moses, right? pleaded with God to not destroy his people for being corrupt and for making an idol in the shape of a calf. And the text says, well, the Lord changed his mind. So the short answer is, yes, there's biblical precedence. Now, do I believe that God, the main actor in all of those incidences, engaged in the unilateral way proposed by the text in question? I'm not sure. But there's certainly biblical precedent for God bending to his people's prayer. So, that, yeah, there's a lot to be said about that. It's really important. But I do spend some time in, the, in my book talking about that. Now, this is something that I've been dying to talk to you about. Ever since uh, getting the preview of the book and, and thumbing through different chapters, you mentioned in the book about Christian cliches. Hmm. God has a plan. God will give you breakthrough if you fast and pray. Healing's right around the corner. I feel like a lot of our listeners, and me personally, I've experienced a lot of those things, and they always fall flat, which is dangerous. And you sort of alluded to this at the beginning of our conversation, that this leads us to disappointment or disillusionment with God and with prayer. What do you think the motivation behind these cliches, these platitudes, these things that we say to each other are? Mm. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to be a little bit the, the therapist part of me. I try to always think in, in the most empathic and compassionate way possible for people. I'm in touch with my own stuff and my own cliches that I've given through the years. So I think the answer is I think it's varied. I think there are people who absolutely believe that God is in full control of every event that occurs in the earth. 
Now, I certainly disagree with them, but my opinion doesn't matter in this case. I mean, they firmly trust God and believe that if we pray, a breakthrough is on the other side. Therefore, while it may be a cliche that they give people sometimes, the person really means what they say. Of course, as we all know, rarely is a cliche the gateway to someone's heart, especially in the midst of pain and tragedy. So I'll give a group of people that sort of um, understanding, that they they mean what they say. They they wholeheartedly believe the verses that they're, the pet verses that they give. But at the end of the day, it is a cliche. But they believe it. But then there's another group of people. And I think there are other people who feel enormous anxiety around other people's pain. In this case, the Christian cliche is, it's really a defense mechanism meant to soothe their own anxiety with the false hope that their defensive cliche against authentic, painful, existential realities will help the people that they're talking to. But an authentic contact with others rarely satisfy the listener's soul. So in this case, cliches are just Christianese fizz with no substance. So those are... So those are two groups of people that I think about giving cliches, right? The people really believe what they're saying. And to them, it's not really cliche. It's really the truth of God's word. It's, it's just absolutely truth. And because they love others, they want to give people truth. But then there are others who are just, it's, it's just a, a way to avoid their own anxiety around things they cannot comprehend, around things that they themselves have some incongruence, that there's some, uh, this sort of uh, cognitive dissonance that they have, but a way to not deal with that is, let me just give you a quick verse. So those are uh, some motivations that I think are behind some of the cliches and platitudes that we uh, have offered and, and many people other uh, have offered as well. think this is such an important topic that we at least bring to the table you know understanding prayer its ideals its theology almost uh you know you 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 have this this idea of having a theology around prayer um why do you think that that's important that we examine um i'm not giving you easy questions this episode (laughs) I, I love it. I actually prefer difficult questions and questions that contradict what I actually believe. Those are the best podcasts to be in. Uh, unfortunately, they're a little bit rare. So please give it to me. Um, I, I, I think theology matters. And there's times where I don't. Like lately, I've been thinking theology, it's just like being on a hamster wheel. You know, theology can be thought of as human talk about human talk about God, right? The things that we say are not God. The finger that pointing to the moon is, is not the moon. And so I wonder, I'm like, oh, everybody has a new theology. I mean, book after book after book. And, you know, is it all, is it all, maybe that's a defense mechanism from doing the most important thing, which is to love, to love God, to love self, to love others. Instead, we're like worrying and, you know, rustling through Paul's theology and that could be construed in 10 different ways. Anyway, some days I think it doesn't matter, but another part of me says, of course, theology matters. 
theology about God and how we think about God and life and death, about God and our planet, about God and sex, about God and the afterlife, and about God and prayer. So let me share how an unexamined theology prayer can have negative consequences, just as, as an example. If we, if we believe in all-powerful, in un, in, well, not uncontrolling, in this case, controlling God, is aware of the person whose situation being prayed for, then it's easy for us to become passive bystanders. It's easy to believe in prayer and sometimes unknowingly, well, God is powerful, God has a plan, God is in control, and God is going to take care of it. And in some instances, not every, prayer becomes this sort of, it actually becomes an obstacle. It's a paradoxical obstacle to human flourishing. Like, this is exactly the kind of thing, uh, uh, kind of thinking some bystanders have when horrific violence or injustice is occurring. It's actually a, a cycle, well, this would be a social psychology phenomenon called the bystander effect, where there are plenty of people watching, uh, sort of maybe in a horrific event. Um, this has happened with a rape, uh, a beating. So, surely there are more competent people than me who are going to take care of it. I'm sure someone has called 911 by now. So this is sort of the bystander effect, like the sense of other people are watching it, other people are there, I'm sure they're going to take care of it, which relieves me of any responsibility. So when someone engages in petitionary prayer, traditional petitionary prayer, many times God becomes the competent grand witness who diffuses human responsibility. Therefore, the bystander effect becomes really on full display. But the problem is the bystander effect can have terrible consequences. Suffering increases exponentially. Death can be a result. I mean, if, if I believe the most loving and powerful divine agent is on the scene, uh, then there is a natural easing of the direness of the situation. If I have given it to God and God has taken care of it, then perhaps I don't have to. I can lift my prayers up and then go about business as usual. But if God, this here's my thing and part of the thrust of writing the book, if God isn't taking care of it and we're not taking care of it, then what is the outcome of the situations being prayed for? And that's why I believe petitionary prayer is traditionally understood as God is in full control. We're praying for God to somehow miraculously increase God's love in a person's life or a situation. I believe that paradoxically prayer like that can actually increase suffering because we're saying, you know, our first prayer isn't, God, we know you love them more than I do. How can I creatively co-labor with you, increasing your love in their life? I mean, that's one way of praying, but it's rather, God, you do it. You increase your love in their life. I don't know how, but I'm just going to lift my 10-second prayer up and go, uh, you know, business as usual. So that's where theology of prayer really matters, a theology of who we believe God is is God controlling? Does God map out everything that happens? Is everything the will of God, the plan of God? Does, quote, God allow all things? Or, in my view, is, God, is God's love uncontrolling? Does God want things to happen sometimes but simply cannot because God's love cannot coerce or force God's way into people's hearts and into uh, situations 
that are in need of the grace of God. So what we believe about prayer, what we believe about God really does matter. Now, I personally struggle with prayer at times. I, I think a lot of people do. The The brave ones admit it. <laughs> I'm not necessarily calling myself brave, but it's my show, so. <laughs> but um, But if I'm asking God to do something on my behalf, the assumption is that the thing I'm asking for is for my good. It's to better my circumstance. Mm. And if I'm asking, that means that it probably wasn't going to happen previously, meaning that mm. I wasn't seeing it done, therefore I needed to ask for it. That's that's usually why we ask for things in our human life, mm. because we're not receiving, therefore we need to ask. And I think a, a, a natural assumption would be that God was not already going to perform the requested action unless <laughs> we had asked. And this sort of goes back to the question that we had talked about previously of, of prayers changing God's mind. Right. And where I struggle with this is that this leads to a dangerous territory of assuming that God only works for my good if I request it which is sort of contradictory to verses like Matthew 7, 11, Romans 8, 28. Mm. Uh, what are your thoughts on that ideal that God only works for my good if I request it? Wow. So this is related uh, to our theology of prayer and who we believe God is. Uh, uh, what comes to mind, let's see, is um, I don't know if you've ever prayed for this, but traveling mercies. 100%. Uh, uh, Right. But like I thought about this and I'm like, okay, uh, let's say we're praying for somebody. And God, I, I pray you would give John traveling mercies as he goes on this trip. Uh, please, God, I, I just pour your love out on him as, as he goes out and give him wisdom and just traveling mercies, protect him. And then I got to thinking, what what am I saying here? It, like if if I didn't pray for traveling mercies, then would God – you know, not save him from getting into an accident? Like, like, what am I really saying here? I mean, so we can tease it out and saying, well, I could pray for out of a motivation of love what I'd love to see God to do. But the idea that God would let someone get hurt or get into an accident because someone prayed or did not pray is just completely absurd. I don't know how that could be a good and loving father. Um, but uh, listen, I, I think the phrase God is good all the time and all the time God is good should be taken literally. Um, God is doing all he can to, do to, to maximize good and minimize evil. But God is constrained by uncontrolling loving nature. Mark, how could you say such a thing? Listen, uh, the birds do not pray, but a loving God takes care of them. The lilies do not intercede, yet God is mindful of them. Right? Matthew 6.28. And I love this, right? Enemies and persecutors of God do not pray, but God loves them. Matthew 5, 43, Luke 6, 27. And this is one of my favorite verses. The ungrateful and wicked, right, do not pray, yet God is kind to them. Right? That's the, uh, you know, the, the that's just absurd. It's prodigal love. It's rashfully wasteful and extravagant. God so loved the world without the prompting of prayer, right? John 3, 16. Like, God's always loving, moment to moment. God is loving, seeking to bring beauty and truth and goodness 
to all human and human beings and creatures in the world, and he's doing so without prayer. I know that's a little controversial, I guess. Uh, it doesn't really have to be. So I think God is is always loving. And, and here I make a distinction between praying on behalf of ourselves and petitioning God on behalf of others. In other words, I think there's a distinction between praying, God, I am sick, please heal me, in contrast to maybe praying for an uncle 100 miles away. God, please heal Uncle John as he, uh, he has a cold. And for me, God has this open-door policy, right? Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Notice Jesus did not say it will be given to you and those you pray for or seek and they will find or knock and the door will be opened to them. More often than not, the gifts of God come to the asker, to the seeker, and to the one who opens the door of their hearts, uh, i.e. sort of your faith has healed you in Luke 18.42. And why? Because it's those who's, you know, open their hearts to God who can become willing recipients of his loving action. So I think God is always loving moment to moment to the greatest extent possible, which might be very interesting to some of your listeners. But I, I truly believe that. And so praying for myself and surrendering my heart is different than maybe praying for somebody, you know, hundreds of miles away. I don't know what they're doing in the moment, even if they're even being receptive to God. But I already know that God loves them more than I do and is loving them moment to moment without me needing to pray for God to do so. I know it brings up a lot of other questions, but I promise you my book does answer many of them. Yeah which I highly recommend. Um, you know, this conversation is obviously just a tease towards the content, but, uh, you know, I highly recommend for our listeners that they, they pick up the book. And, uh, and Mark, as, as we've been having this conversation and we bring our time to a close, what do you think the church could do as a first step if they wanted to move into a greater understanding of prayer to step away from you know, the platitudes and the, the simplicity of petitionary prayer that they've operated under and want to understand it a little bit more. What do you think mm. a first step would be? First step, read my book. Besides, Second yeah, I was step, just going to say, was, besides buy your uh, book. <laughs> um, listen, I, I think we need now more than ever to engage in embodied conspiring prayers where we pray with God instead of to God. I mean, Paul writes, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, Ephesians 5. We're called to silence our busy lives, seek God in prayer, hear her heartbeat echoing her non-coercive, uncontrolling love in the world by performing the unique mission God has for us. And I wonder what the, I, I really asked myself, I, I wonder what the impact would be instead of praying God, stop the violence. God, heal their land. Or God, save the poor children. I wonder if our first impulse was to pray, God, we praise you. We thank you. And we know you care more about these people than we do. Show us how we can collaborate with you to stop the violence. Show us impactful and practical ways we can partner with you to, to help heal their land. Or, or God, we're devastated along with you. 
Reveal to us your loving will and empower us to bring forth shalom for these hurting children. I mean, can you imagine what kind of world we would live in if God lovers did not falsely believe God was in control of all things? Can you imagine the wondrous extent of God's rule of love and shalom on the earth if if we took the idea of stewardship and identity or identity as the body of Christ on the earth seriously? Can you imagine all the people who would be saved, restored, healed, loved, rescued, empowered, and showered with grace if superstitious praying, believing an all-powerful, autocratic God will miraculously intervene all by God's self, did not get in the way of responsible, spirit-filled action? That's some thoughts that come to mind for me. That's powerful, Mark. Thank you. And thanks so much for being on the show. If people wanted to connect with you personally online, how could they do that? And where can they connect with the book? Sure. The book, I think it's everywhere. Um, you know, Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, all kind of online real retailers. And people can go to my website at conspiringprayer.com and find some additional blogs and information about my book. I encourage your, your listeners to contact me with any questions and I, I really, my hope is like this book is my journey into developing my own theology of prayer. I'm not God. I'm a very situated human being in this particular epoch of time, white, Western, right? I'm very constrained and limited by many things. So my encouragement would be take the book. There's also a workbook that churches have been using, small groups, to help develop their own theology of prayer. Work through it yourselves. Take these, the study guide in, in my own book as a springboard to delve in the topic for yourself to find what you truly believe about God and theodicy and, and prayer. And so that would be my hope. And I do want to say that if a reader, a listener does get the book, I'm happy to give the, the study guide that is selling on Amazon for, for free. So just have the listeners contact me or, or whatever, and I'd be happy to do that with my publisher's blessing. That's awesome. We'll make sure we list that in the show notes. But again, Mark, thanks so much for giving us your time. Sure. Thank you so much. And that wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. You've been listening to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Visit us at dismantlepod.com.